Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and with me is Chad. How are you doing today, Chad? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you, Al? Oh, not too bad. And today we are recording this on November 25th, uh, good old Black Friday. So did uh, you or the wife go out and do Black Friday shopping this morning? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, my, my wife did. She usually just kind of goes in and, uh, you know, she, I don't know, I do not like large crowds in general. So, yeah, Black Friday has never really been my thing, you know? Yeah, well, for us, we used to do it every year because it was a great time to get Christmas presents and that kind of stuff. But honestly, man, when San- the, the belief in the belief in Santa Claus from the kids went away... So did Black Set Friday. I mean, we were just like, no, it's not worth it. Yeah, there were a couple of years where I went to uh, the mall and stuff on Black Friday. And I, I mentioned in an earlier episode, I used to work in a mall back when I was in high school. And yeah, I remember working uh, a 14-hour day on Black Friday. So yeah, no, I didn't do that ever again. I uh, I worked for Walmart for three years through Black Friday. I am so, so uh, sorry. But you survived. <laughs> I did. Um, you know, I always had one year, you know, I, I worked in different, I didn't, I wasn't like a normal employee. Like one year I worked in, uh, what was it? It was uh, the, the Photoshop, you know, the photo area the where photo one lab, hour yep. photo, not a big thing on Black Friday. Uh, then one year, um, well, actually the next two years I was the pets department manager. Well, you know, it's Black Friday. There's not a whole lot of stuff that deals with Black Friday in the pets department. Um, one year they did put me for four hours, they put me in electronics at a, <laughs> at a checkout. That was oh. interesting, but you know, it was okay. It was fun. I, I actually enjoy people like people energize me. I'm not one. I'm not very good on my own. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I do well with people. So Black Friday from that side of it never really was much of a problem. Um, it, it's the, it, it was this side. I don't like going as a shopper. Um, cause I'm just, I mean, people are just nasty. You know, you're supposed to be at that time of year where it's supposed to be the, the niceness of the world and everything is coming out and people are, I mean, they can just really be jerks. Yeah. I've, like I said, having worked in retail and tech support and customer service, trust me, I know how big jerks of people can be, but <laughs> yeah, but this is this time of year, you know, of course, where everyone's supposed to be happy and nice to each other. And, you know, we're, we're pretty much past the, the Thanksgiving specials and, you know, well, way, way past the Halloween specials. So of course now uh, in a few days, it's going to start to be the Christmas specials now. Oh, yes. Um, in fact, it's, it's kind of become a Thanksgiving tradition here in the Knight family is we do all our, uh, we do, you know, we do Thanksgiving with my, uh, with my mother and then with my in-laws and then with my dad, you know, so we do three meals on Thanksgiving. We get home and we pop in a Christmas story. That's kind of been the, become the tradition over the last few years. So it's, um, you know, you get to, and, and we don't watch it any other time of the year really, but, it's uh, one of those movies that could be argued it's not really a Christmas movie, yeah. but um, it's it kind of become that Thanksgiving tradition. So yeah, and you know. and I know that's that's uh, 
something for another time, you know, just a topic that's, you know, okay, what makes a, a Christmas movie or what makes a Halloween movie or what makes a, you know, a Christmas special? Like if you've got a sitcom and, you know, there's, okay, it takes place in December and there's maybe some Christmas carolers outside and a Christmas tree in the background, does that make it a Christmas episode or doesn't need to actually have something more involved with Christmas in it? And, you know, of right. course... And- and I've got to ask you, did you say that's a topic for another episode? Let me guess. That's a topic you want us to discuss today. No, actually, it's not. Actually, I was going to say everybody out there should take a shot because it's the it's the gaming, our geekery in general uh, podcast drinking game. Yes. I was, yeah, no, I was actually thinking of making that. It's like, yeah, the, since there are certain things like, you know, we can make that drinking game. Like every time I take, I say, uh, you know, the uh, that's a topic for another day, take a shot. Or anytime I mention my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands, take another drink. Right. Or anytime and, I'm the guest. <laughs> yes. And of course, uh, and of course, uh, you know, now whenever you turn on the radio up, up until, you know, about January 1st, it's probably going to be wall to wall Christmas music, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but today's topic is a mystery to me. And that's because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Normally, you know, just to give you guys a little bit of inside baseball behind the scenes, usually when I have a topic for an episode, you know, I'll send an email to Chad and be like, okay, how would you like to do this for an episode? And then, you know, we'll, sometimes we'll do a little back and forth. We will put together, sometimes we'll put together a, a short outline and, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I take other notes to myself as well. I do. In fact, um, you hear that? Yeah. That's my notes for today. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm doomed. So today we're, we're doing something a little different because, as I'm sure many of you know, another one of the programs on my my channel is Chad's program, Whose Podcast Is It Anyway?, where... The guest chooses the topic, and this time, though, we're going to do that with geekery in general because Chad decided the topic for today, and I am totally in the dark, so lay it on me, man. What are we talking about today? No guesses at all, Al. Well, guess? Actually, yeah, I should guess. I guess on every episode. I should guess, yes. Um, Sharknado. You know... I started watching Sharknado because that was one of the topics I had brought up as maybe we can do a movie episode on that because we do a few podcasts here and there where we talk about movies on Netflix or Hulu. You know, honestly, I started watching that movie and oh my God, is it horrible. I have not, I have not finished Sharknado 1, let alone 2 or 3. So, uh, no, we're not talking Sharknado today. Okay, because yeah, I've seen part two and it, it didn't impress me really with Sharknado the only thing that's really enjoyable about watching that movie was just looking for all the cameos. It's like, oh, that waiter in the back is actually that one guy from that one sitcom that was popular back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. The the, the cameos were nice, but the CGI sharks were horrible. I couldn't believe it. It was it was bad. But, I mean, I get it. They're, they're making money off of it. Uh, you know, the cameos are what bring people into it. And if you're in the kind of cheesy movies, which normally I am, great. And maybe if I was in a different mood when I sat down or something, you know, great. But neither here nor there. Today, we are going to talk about one of my favorite 
authors. Okay. Hopefully it's so, someone that I'm familiar with or at least have uh, maybe even read a book or two by them. Well, I don't know if you've read a book or two by them, but I know you're at least familiar with the name because we've done a movie based on their writing. H.P. Lovecraft? Yeah, there you go. Okay. So we're going to talk Lovecraft because it's one of those things we've talked here and there. You know, I've brought up topics and stuff that, um, you know, involve him, but not are not really about him. So I went out and I did a little research and, and um, figured, why don't we sit down and talk about, you know, the author himself? Okay, because, you know, it's funny you should mention that when we talk about, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, which I only know very, very little about him personally. The main things I know about him, because uh, when, when you were down for uh, New Game of Palooza back in October, uh, we've got a, a friend, Phil, who, you know, usually we only see during the conventions, but he has a, you know, a store he does, Cheap Books by Phil. And I picked up a book by Robert E. Howard, the author of Conan, called Cthulhu, the Mythos and Kindred Horrors. So I started reading that book. Only got through the first story right now, um, and I just started the second one in it. But yeah, so other than that, that's probably about my the extent of my knowledge with things Lovecraftian. <laughs> Okay, well, it's a, this is not a problem. I can, I can definitely. I mean, you can ask me questions, but I can definitely go through uh, some of the material I have here. Yep, because well, I remember on one of your episodes of uh, whose podcast it is is it anyway? Your friend brought up Terry Pratchett, and you didn't know anything about him, so I can do this. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to a question of what's what you know. What do you Al want to know about him? I've got. Quite a bit of his stuff here. Um, I, I can start out talking and we can go from there. What was so, H.P. Lovecraft's favorite brand of orange juice? Um, I don't know. I, did they have orange juice back then? I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure they did in some shape or form. So why don't yeah, we start? Probably fresh squeezed, I would guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Howard Phillips Lovecraft. H.P. stands for Howard Phillips. Um, Phillips was a family name. I don't know where Howard came from, but anyway, he was born on August 20th, 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. And he died on March 15th, 1937 in Providence, Rhode Island. He was, he didn't travel much. He was married once for just a few months. And, uh, there, you know, the rumors, I've read the rumors that maybe he wasn't a straight man. Maybe he was. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't come into play as far as, you know, what he's brought to the literary world and the people that he has inspired with his writing. So his first material was bought by a horror magazine called Weird Tales. And I didn't have time to look this up. I don't know if Weird Tales is still out there or not. Um, but it was bought in 1923, and it was the story of the Call of Cthulhu. I'm sorry, that's incorrect. His story, the Call of Cthulhu, came out in 1928 in Weird Tales. Okay. And then, as we all know, elements um, of that story would reappear in other related tales. You know, and then in the end, he didn't get famous, or he didn't get famous, and he didn't get rich off of his writings in his lifetime. In fact, um, towards the end of his life, he took up editing and ghostwriting um, just to make ends meet. So he was one of those 
authors or artists who really wasn't appreciated in his time. Correct. He was a sickly child. He spent a lot of his childhood um, at home, which caused him to be an avid reader. He would read a lot. He loved the works of Edgar Allan Poe, which is another name that a lot of people know. Um, He was very interested in astronomy. By the time he was a teenager, he wasn't as sickly. He did actually go to a public high school, but then he suffered a nervous breakdown. (laughs) So he never did earn a high school degree. And then, you know, he became a reclusive. Everybody um, that knows much about Lovecraft knows that he was, you know, he was a reclusive. He would... um, He would stay up late studying, reading, and writing. He would sleep long into the day. And, you know, besides his horror work, he actually did write some articles on astronomy that were published. So, you know, he kind of touched everything. He started out as a journalist, uh, joining the United Amateur Press Association in 1914. He launched a self-published magazine called The Conservative. Uh, which he wrote essays and other pieces for. You know, he didn't start writing fiction until the late 19-teens or so. And then a lot of his stuff was influenced by an Irish author, and I'm not familiar with this author, Lord Dunnessy. So Weird Tales uh, bought some of his stories in 1923. Yeah, and then the following year, 1924, he married Sonia Green. Um, they, and I was wrong, not several months, just a couple years though. They were married for two years. They lived in New York city. He then returned to Rhode Island. Call of Cthulhu came out in 1928. It says Lovecraft influent or introduced readers to the first of many supernatural beings that would wreak havoc on humankind. Elements of this story would reappear in other related tales collectively known by many as the Cthulhu mythos, which That is where we can kind of diverge a little bit and talk about gaming, because I know this is a gaming podcast, (laughs) which is uh, one of the places I want to go with this. There is a game out there called The Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and... You know, the even uh, the whole Cthulhu mythos even made its way into uh, Dungeons & Dragons, of course, back in the days of first edition when they released the uh, Deities and Demigods, where... The first, the first two printings, because for, I'm sure a lot of uh, our audience, you know, probably have have heard of it. If you don't have it, the book's got kind of the psychedelic artwork on the cover, blues and purples, and has a couple of deities fighting. And there were four printings of it, where the first one had the Cthulhu mythos, but then they got, I guess, in a little bit of a trouble with Chaosium because they were the ones that had the right to the Cthulhu stuff. So then in the second printing of that book, they acknowledged that they were, you know, they were borrowing this material and they were using it uh, with their permission. Because I believe they also, uh, Chaosium also had the rights to Michael Moorcock's uh, Ehrlich cycle or Ehrlich mythos. So they had that in the, the first two printings as well. But then, like, the third version of it, they're like, well, why are we thanking a, a competitor? So they decided that in, instead of what they would do is, you know, they they took the Cthulhu mythos and the Ehrlich stuff 
out of the book, but they accidentally left it in on like the back cover. And then finally the fourth edition of that came out and everything was corrected. And then eventually they translated it from, well, not translated it. Instead of calling it deities and demigods, they changed the name to legends and lore, which is the name that they still go by today. Okay. Yeah. I, I had heard about that. They also did, um, they did a die 20, uh, call of Cthulhu. Um, which was done, uh, I think it was a work between Chaosium and um, Wizards of the Coast at the time. Wizards of the Coast was, I had just purchased D&D, so with the third edition stuff, they did a Die 20 write-up of Call of Cthulhu. They have done now um, Sandy Peterson, who wrote the original Call of Cthulhu game for Chaosium, I don't know if it's out yet, but it's coming. It, they're doing it for Pathfinder. They're doing a Call of Cthulhu uh, set in the Pathfinder or set in the Pathfinder world using the mechanics of the Pathfinder role playing system. Yeah, I think I remember you uh, mentioning something like that. Yeah, yeah, it, it was kickstarted and it was successfully kickstarted. Now um, we're just kind of waiting for it to uh, hit store shelves. So you know, it 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 influences a lot of gaming. You can find bits and pieces of it, like in the world of darkness, they won't call it the same, as, but you can look at it and go, you know, obviously this was influenced by the mythos, you know, things like that. You know, also in addition to uh, the influence that it's had there, uh, the, you know, because I, I mentioned before how I, I was reading uh, that book by Robert E. Howard, and and I think we discussed this on a previous episode that, the two of them, or no, that was, I think, uh, August Derelith, where, you know, they wrote lots of letters because you were meant, I remember you were mentioning that uh, Lovecraft was a bit of a Luddite, so he didn't really like technology. He preferred to, you know, if he wanted to, to communicate with someone, he much would have rather, you know, wrote a letter directly to them. Right, versus calling someone, because, you know, you know, Everybody should know this, but, you know, if there's young kids out there, the Internet didn't always exist. You know, computers didn't always exist, email, that kind of stuff. So in the 20s, you know, the teens in the 20s and and such, he would have had one of two options. He could have wrote a letter. I suppose there was more than that. He could have made a phone call or he could have, you know, sent telegraphs, I guess. You know, so the fact that he wrote letters really... That doesn't surprise me. It's just the number of letters. Um, somewhere I had read that it exceeded over 10,000 letters that he wrote in his lifetime. So, um, but yeah, speaking of August Derelith, he, August Derelith and Donald uh, Wandry formed a publishing company after Lovecraft died called Arkham House. And I'm sure everybody's heard of Arkham House um, to promote and preserve Lovecraft's work. And that's really why we know about Lovecraft today in general. If it wasn't for the work of those two guys, Lovecraft could have been one of those writers that was just kind of lost to history because he wasn't famous in his lifetime. And, you know, that um, the fact that somebody, you know, contemporaries of his found his work worth saving says a lot about it to begin with. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure because of those people, there are many people who ended up having nightmares that they normally wouldn't have had because <laughs> <laughs> after they first started to read Cthulhu. So, 
Right. And um, just quickly, I'm going to go through people, uh, names that people will know now that write that were influenced by Lovecraft. Names such as Peter Straub, Neil Gaiman, Stephen King. It's just, you know, those are big names in literature today that, you know, took their lead from people, you know, such as Lovecraft. In a 2000, actually, I don't have a date on this, but Stephen King explained in an interview to American Heritage Magazine that now that time has given us some perspective on his work, I think it is beyond doubt that H.P. Lovecraft has yet to be surpassed as the 20th century's greatest practitioner of the classic horror tale. I mean, Stephen King, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I think nowadays a lot of... uh you know, a lot of the younger horror fans, if if you ask them to name a horror author, Stephen King is probably going to be one of the people that, or one of the authors that people will mention the most because, you know, not only has he been very prolific, but a lot, prolific, sorry, um, a lot of his, you know, a lot of his uh, books have gone on to become movies or in some cases tv series like i don't know if you remember watching the stand the miniseries they had on tv back in the i think it was like remember watching the stand i watched it about a month ago (laughs) oh wow yeah and uh and i think uh under the dome my my wife and i were watching that for a little bit i guess that's also based on stephen king as well yep under the dome um there was also the langoliers that was a miniseries on tv um, there's been several of them. And then if you want to talk about Stephen King movies, that just gets ridiculous. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we, okay, everyone prepare to take a drink of your beverage. You know, we could talk about movies based on Stephen King books, but say it with me now. That's a, that's topic, a topic for, for another, another day. Podcast. Yes, exactly. Yep. So, so back to, uh, HP Lovecraft now. So now did he? What kind of education did he have? Was he? Did he go to college or? No, he uh, actually never graduated high school um, because he was sick most of his childhood, and then because he didn't deal well with people, um, he never actually graduated uh, high school. But he was self-taught. He learned how to read from his mother. Um, his father, um, actually, from the time. Uh, that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was about three. His father uh, was a traveling salesman. He developed a type of mental disorder caused by untreated syphilis when, um, like when I said, when Lovecraft was about three. Um, in 1893, uh, so the year he became three, his father became a patient at the Butler Hospital in Providence and remained there for five years until he died of syphilis. So... <laughs> He didn't have a, he didn't really have a father figure. He had his mother and he had his aunt. And actually his mother died when he was relatively young too. And he mostly was raised by his aunt. And he had a lot of health issues as well. So it was, it was kind of a, uh, you know, he didn't have the greatest childhood. Do you think some of those experiences that he had as a child influenced his writing and his works? Oh, absolutely. And the fact, um, and I didn't see it in my notes here, but I know I had read somewhere once that he also suffered uh, from night terrors from the time he was little. So 
for people out there that don't know what a night terror is, you take a, you take a nightmare and you just multiply it by, you know, an exponent of X. Yeah. Where if you wake up from a nightmare, you're kind of like, oh, wow, that was, that was weird. That was night terrors. You wake up and you think it's still happening and it's just very hard on the body. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced one in your life. Not really. I don't think I don't I've think ever. I have either, you know, because usually if you wake up, I've, I've had nightmares and you wake up and you're like, oh, wow, that was, you know, and it might take you a couple minutes, but night terrors are one of those things that stick with you, you know, because if you have a nightmare, usually if you, especially if you go back to sleep by morning, it's gone. You remember having a nightmare, but tell me what it's about, you know? Yeah, most, and I know it's like that for me. I mean, there's times where I wake up feeling like I didn't get a very good night's sleep, or I remember waking up in the middle of the night, but I don't remember the specifics of the actual nightmare itself. Right, yeah. No, I'm I'm right there with you. So, so yeah, uh, let's see. What else do we got here? I have got, I have got like, um, three printed pages <laughs> of stories he wrote. So I'm not just going to sit here and read them, but I am going to touch on a few of them and I'm going to do them chronologically. And this is not everything I've read. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I'm looking at this list going, Oh man, I need to read that. And now some of them, especially his early writings, um, because his first, his first official, story he wrote or whatever you want to call it and i've never read this one in fact um it's labeled non-extant which i believe uh, means they don't have a there's no written copy of it you can't find it it was called the noble eavesdropper and he wrote that when he was seven in nine in 1897 so he started writing early and he wrote you know um up to like 1900 he wrote six or seven stories and some of them you can actually find um online to read he wrote uh in 1917 he wrote a short story called the tomb which is one i've read before it's um it's actually a pretty ingeniously written story it talks about this person who is lost underground and he's trying to find his way out and how once he finds his way out, you know, everybody is scared of him and shocked and runs from him and this and that and the next thing. And it's the last paragraph of this short story, which is about six pages long or so. You find out that it's actually a reanimated mummy. Hmm. So he was finding his way out of a pyramid. And when he got out, of course, you know, you see a walking mummy. You're going to run away in terror. You're going to react and run away in terror. So and that's not just your D&D character. No, trust me. My, my D&D characters are much more um, brave than I am. <laughs> also, 1917, he wrote Dagon, um, which we watched the movie of, which wasn't really even based on Dagon. It was more based on... Um, Shadow over Innsmouth. Yeah, Shadow over Innsmouth. And then you, then there's a few years where he doesn't really write anything uh, of note, um, at least in the stuff that I've read. And that's not to say that there's not anything of note there. It's just I have not read everything of his. Um, I, I think it would be really hard to do so. But Nartholep was published in December of 1920. 
which is where he talks about another one of the gods, which eventually becomes part of the mythos. Then we get to The Outsider in 1921, uh, the music of Eric Zahn, uh, Herbert West Reanimator. I'm sure you've heard of that movie. Or that yes, movie I've too. actually seen that movie. Oh, have you? Yes. I have not actually um, sat down and watched Reanimator yet. Um, it's on Netflix when I saw it, so it's possible it still yeah, might be there. It's still there, but honestly, the story scares me enough that I'm not sure I want to read the story or uh, watch the movie. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty freaky movie. So maybe we'll do that for a maybe we'll do an episode on that show one of these days. And I guess that uh, animator even went on to spawn a couple of sequels. Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's three of them total. Yep. And then in 1923, and this is really where he hit his, hit his stride as far as stuff that I've read. My favorite story of everything I've read is called The Rats in the Wall. Familiar with it at all? You mentioned it to me because uh, last month, because uh, when I, in my first year when I was doing my podcast, I did a Halloween dramatic reading where I read part of a story by Ray Bradbury called The Emissary. And I was thinking of doing something like that again for this last October, but unfortunately, just things got too busy and I wasn't able to do it. Okay. So anyway, um, that's my favorite story. It's a short, short story. Um, and by that, I mean, it's like, maybe six pages long. And it talks about this guy who inherits a house and he gets there. And at first, you know, everything's fine. You know, standard horror story He gets there at first. Everything's fine. He starts, you know, uh, fixing the house up, that kind of stuff. And then at night he starts hearing things and it's in the walls and it, and it's like the wall he hears in the walls and it's like, they're trying to get him to follow it, you know, and he, and he slowly goes insane because he's living in this big house by himself. And every night he's going through this, you know, these sounds and this. So he starts following the sounds and it eventually gets him down into the basement or actually the sub-basement of his house where he finds this um, altar of worship for some, you know, long forgotten dead God type thing. And there's all these rats and it's just. It, it it's one of those stories where when you read it, it kind of like your skin crawls and you get the you get goosebumps while you read it and that kind of stuff. But it's just so well written that you actually kind of like I, I don't know how reading affects you, but when I read something and I really get into it, it's like I become the main character, you know, in my head, and you start seeing everything. And it's just one of those stories that really drags you into it. I know, because the, uh, the first story that I read in that uh, Cthulhu, The Mythos and Horror Stories by Robert Lee Howard, Robert E. Howard, rather, yeah, it did really kind of drag in, and I noticed that it was called, uh, just page it through the book because I happen to have had it right next to me here, The Black Stone. So, uh, yeah, that definitely got, I know what you mean, I mean, it, I haven't read any of Lovecraft's actual work yet, so... Uh, but I, I think you, I know what you're saying there, where it really kind of drags you in and really makes you want to continue reading. So Right, right. So, okay, can, uh, go on, continue. Um, all right, so from there, then, you know, we've got stuff in 23. you got The Unnameable. You've got The Festival. He actually wrote one here, and I did not know this one. And I've got I've to find this short story. It's called Under the Pyramids. But he wrote it with Harry Houdini. Cool. So that that's gonna that was 1924, 
Um, you know, he had the shunned house, the horror at Red Hook. And then it's 1926, The Call of Cthulhu comes out. Uh, or that's when he wrote it, I should say. It, it didn't come out till 1928. And the list I have is the years that he actually wrote them. Um, and then from there, um, The Silver Key, um, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, The Color Out of Space, The History of the Necronomicon. The that's another of- uh, thing of... Uh, Lovecrafts that you know really has way, made its way into popular culture, you know yeah, the Necronomicon. I have a copy of it here. <laughs> yeah, and we the real Necronomicon or the uh, Walden Books one that uh, was you know that was not real. Actually, neither of them. Um, the one I have is just a collected works, but it's called the Necronomicon, and they actually bound it in um, this really weird feeling leather. I, I guarantee it's not human skin, which the original Necronomicon was supposed to be, you know, uh, bound in. But um, it, it's really kind of a neat um, story. Story. So then he starts kind of hitting his stride. And then the Dunwich Horror, um, the Mound, <laughs> At the Mountains of Madness, which is actually a novella. That is uh, based on an ex. An explorer, an explorer group goes down to Antarctica and they find this lost city and it's, it's a really long story. And I will be honest with people, Lovecraft, <clears throat> if you read Lovecraft, it is sometimes a very, very hard read. He speaks or he writes a lot in old English. He was an Angliophile. He was in love with Britain. Never went, but he was in love with the language. So he writes that way a lot. And if you don't know what you're getting into, it can be a hard read. Um, even if you do know what you're getting into, it can be a hard read. So if you're someone that really likes to um, not be challenged when you read, Lovecraft is probably not the author you want to read. So it's it's one of those things where if you want to read Lovecraft, you should probably kind of lock yourself away in a, in a room, get comfortable and have as little outside distractions as possible. It would be it would be very much helpful, yes. So uh you've got uh, At the Mountains of Madness, you've got The Shadows Over Innsmouth, uh The Dreams in the Witch House and these are all his stories, but not all of them are mythos stories. Um, if you know anything about the mythos, you're probably picking out which ones are mythos and which ones aren't. Basically, if it has anything to do with shadows, keys, uh, dreams, in the most cases, those are part of the mythos. And I say that, and then I tell you that At the Mountains of Madness is a mythos story, and the dreams in the witch house are not. So Let's, let's talk a little bit about his writing style. And one of the things that I picked up from reading that that uh, the Black Stone story, and I'm not sure how much uh, that H.P. Lovecraft introduced into this work, but there seems to be like, uh, at least in anything inspired by the Cthulhu mythos, there's usually a lot of the, or one of the, the reoccurring themes is people going after forbidden knowledge or things that are best left undiscovered. Yes. So, and a lot of it is, okay, you've got this knowledge that you're looking for, but while you might find it, sometimes there's a real terrible price to pay. So 
was that theme prevalent in Justice Cthulhu books, or did you see that in a lot of his other works as well? All, all his writings have to do with forbidden knowledge, and that was that was kind of his his staple. That was what he focused on. And when it comes to it, it has a lot to do with the way he was raised. He was raised very strict religious, and he was very not religious, uh, you know, by the time he became an adult. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, I can understand how that would have an effect on you because, you know, the whole forbidden fruit. It's like... Right. To- well, the forbidden fruit, and there was a time in the Catholic Church, it's it's not so much anymore, and I don't know if he was Catholic, um, I, I don't think he was, I think he was some form of Protestant, but there was a time in the Catholic Church where Mass was done in Latin, and you were taught just enough Latin to answer what the priest was saying, but even your Bibles were in Latin, so if you didn't read Latin or you didn't know Latin... It was kind of a, a mysterious thing, and you were not encouraged to ask questions. Um, in a lot of ways, the Catholic Church is still that way. <laughs> well, but, didn't um, uh, what was the Pope before Francis Benedict? Uh, yes. Didn't he try to do a move, um, do something where he was trying to move some parts of Mass back to Latin? Yes. Okay, and which I don't know. That just doesn't make sense. I mean, okay, if you're trying to preach a message to someone and you're not speaking a language they can understand, it's like you might as well be telling them a cookie recipe because they're not they're going to get about as much out of it, you know? Right. You know, up until Vatican II in the late 60s, Mass, you did High Mass. High Mass was done in Latin. And the reason for that is, being a Catholic, I have some insight on this, but the bigger part of that is, you know, the church is built on four pillars, and those pillars are... One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, okay? So one, they wanted everybody to hear Mass in the same language. That means if I went to church in Wausau, or I went to church in New York, or I went to church in Africa, I got the same Mass. And that's why they standardized in Latin. But, you know, after Vatican II, they they said, no, we're going to speak in the vernacular of the area. To bring more people in, you know, it was a, it was a recruiting objective, you know? Yeah. So, but anyway, we don't want to get talking about that too much. So, other than the fact that, you know, he really didn't like the fact that religion didn't, you know, they didn't, religion didn't want you to question anything. It was dangerous to question, you know, and that's kind of the leap he made. And the whole mythos is based around, in my mind anyway, that whole bit of don't ask too many questions because asking questions is dangerous. Yep, because sometimes, and I mean, I can see where it's like, and especially in like the Lovecraft uh, works, it's like you don't want to ask too many questions because you might find an answer and you might not like the answer you get. Right, and if you if you translate that into the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game they have the, you have your sanity which is how well you can handle these shocks of you know knowledge or otherworldly creatures or you know walking into the middle of a cult while it's having a ritual or something like that but then there's also another there's another thing it's called uh cthulhu mythos and it's 99 
Okay, so you start out with 99 points. We'll actually start with zero points of Cthulhu Mythos, Mythos, but it's 99, okay? So you have 99, and it says minus, and one of your stats is Cthulhu Mythos. Well, you can't put points into it except in very extreme circumstances. Like sometimes if I'm running a high-level game at a convention, I will let them put you know knowledge into their Cthulhu Mythos. But it's every time you come across some knowledge that's otherworldly or you see a creature that's otherworldly, you gain more knowledge in the mythos. Now, the more you know in the mythos, your sanity goes down equal to your knowledge in mythos. So just as an example, let's say you start out with a uh, sanity of 70, okay? And... I tell you, okay, you found this book. You found the Necronomicon, let's say. You opened it up. You read a passage out of it. Well, that might give you two or three mythos points. So now you have a Cthulhu mythos at 3%, let's say, and your sanity just went from 70 to 67, and you can no longer exceed 67. So you can no longer – that's your new max in a role-playing system. So it plays off this theme that there are some things that the human mind just – either isn't meant to know or just simply cannot comprehend. Right. And the more you know, the less sanity you have. So there's there's a give and take to having this knowledge. Yeah, and I think we talked about this before on a, a previous episode. We were talking about how, you know, the universe being infinite. And I think as humans, of course, it's kind of hard for us sometimes to really grasp the concept of infinity and, you know, imagining it going, you know, on it, you know, going on and on and on without end. Right. And maybe if we did really know what was on there, out there on the, the furthest reaches of the universe, would we be able to fully comprehend it? And if we were able to comprehend it, would we be better off? Because wasn't that another one of, because, uh, yeah, that uh, Dagon movie. I think they mentioned that quote in there, like, perhaps one of the most merciful things about the universe is that we don't understand all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I don't think the human mind has the ability to. I mean, we can, we can put it in a bubble, let's say. You know, we can say, okay, we're part of this universe, and it's expanding at whatever speed it's expanding at. And we can say, yes, it's expanding into nothing. But can you really wrap your head around that? I know. It's mind-boggling just to think. And then, you know, of course, we get into the whole idea of, you know, where did the universe even come from? And then there's theories on cosmology that the universe might be, okay, I'm not sure if this is the correct word, but cyclic, where, you know, there's a big bang followed by a big crash, where the universe, you know, starts from this ball of matter and spreads out in all directions but then loses energy and then starts coming back and ex- implodes on itself again. But then right. it expands again. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting theory that, um, and I think in Hinduism they kind of get at that, where it's like the universe that we are living in is just one of many, uh, I'm trying to think of the best word to say it, iterations or versions of the universe. So, and in a way it's kind of like, well, remember back in, 2012 when people were concerned about you know was it the the Mayan calendar and how 
run out and we were all going to die. Yeah, and you know, and of course the actual thing is, I think in the Mayan calendar, it's like, no, they didn't consider it the end of the universe. They just consider it the end of a cycle. And right. you've probably read the comic, The Far Side, correct? Oh, yes. They had this one where they had some Mayans making a calendar and it said, well, looks like we ran out of space after 2012. And then one of the other Mayans was saying, well, I bet that's going to freak out somebody someday. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. You know, and it, and it comes down to there are so many, so many different ideas of when the world's going to end. And depending on, you know, what theory you you subscribe to, what religion you subscribe to, you know, it, it's all different. Um, actually, a couple years ago, um, I went to a Bon Jovi concert, okay, and it was in May, and some guy ha- had come out and said, that the world was going to end, and it happened to be on the night, and I don't remember, it was in May, I remember that, and it happened to be the night that we went to this Bon Jovi concert, right? And it had kind of made the news, you know, you saw it on the AP here and there, about this guy, you know, saying when the world was going to end. And I thought it was kind of funny, because during the concert, like in the middle of the concert, John brings it up, you know, and he's like, and they were streaming the concert at the same time we were, you know, they were doing it, and he goes, this goes out to, and I forget what the guy's name was, and they played the end of the world as we know it, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. And obviously the world didn't end. Yeah. And a few days later, the same guy came back and he said, I did my calculations wrong. It's actually going to end in, you know, September or whatever. Yes. I remember that guy. Um, oh, and then his... he passed away before the next day came around. No, I, I thought he actually died shortly. I know he died shortly after. I know the guy's oh, name. After the... Yeah. It's like, I remember, yeah, it was fairly recent. Um, was it 2011 he thought it was, thought it was going to end? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, because I, I think that's what it was, 2011, he thought like it was supposed to end in May 2011. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's like, no, I made a, I made an uh, incorrect, you know. Calculation. Uh, calculation. So it's actually not, it's actually going to end in December. And it's like, yeah, and well, we're still here. So apparently that was uh, not correct, huh? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and it just, it, it all depends. You know, some religions say you, you never know when the world's going to end. You know, it's up to God. He'll say when the world ends. No man uh, on on yeah, earth. Thief no in the night. Yeah, and, no one knows. Yeah. And then there's other places, you know, um, you know, every century that comes around, there's somebody, the world's going to end, you know. Uh, we had our, you know, we had our Y2K scare thing, you know. And... <laughs> So it's just a matter of uh, of what you what you put your 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 stock in, you know. Yeah. Um, lack of a better word, but I honestly think that a lot of what Lovecraft was trying to get was human nature. He was trying to play with the concept of human nature and what people believe in and what they're willing to believe in, you know, based on how it's sold to them. I mean, because if I said to you, Al, Al, I'm going to start a cult. Are you interested? You're sure, say, why not? Okay. I was going to say, you're probably going to say no. You're going to be like, you know, no, nobody goes out looking to join a cult, I guess is what I'm kind of getting at. Will there be cookies and pizza? Of course. I'm in. <laughs> you know, it's like they wow. say, come right. to the, come, there's that, that meme of Darth Vader. Come to the dark side. We have cookies. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, how do I put this? I have my first convert to the Church of Chad. Woohoo! 
You can be a high priest. What the hell? Sure. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think he just played on the concept of, um, you know, what people are talked into. I mean, you look through all throughout history. There are cults. There are always cults. Sometimes they're called religions. Sometimes they're called cults. But when you get right down to it, even and and. You know, I could get in trouble for saying this if the wrong person's listening, but even recognized churches to a certain degree would fit into what, you know, the definition of a cult is. Yep. And I remember uh, one of my religious studies classes I took. I mean, do you remember back in, I'm wanting to say it was like 97, there was that that cult in California that had committed that mass suicide oh, because they uh, thought that a comet was there was a spaceship that was trailing comet Hale Bop and it was going to pick them up. Yeah, the 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 uh, higher source, I think, uh, Reverend Applewhite or something was yeah, the guy who ran it. Uh, what they call him? The uh, I just said it now. I can't remember. Um, higher but, source. Yeah, the no, it wasn't no, that. That's the name of the company they 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 did. Yeah, I, that was the company, but they were called Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate, yes. Um, I had just said it when you when you listen back to this, Al, you'll hear I said it, and then it completely escaped my mind. Yeah. It was kind of funny, you know. And and I think that's just what he was getting at is how susceptible we as people are to different things if it's sold to us the right way. Exactly, and you know, getting what I was talking about that religious studies class I took. I remember our professor shared an article with us, and he's like. You know, yeah, basically one guy was defining a cult. Well, a cult is pretty much any religion that's more bizarre than your own. And I think you're, you know, you're right because I've, I've heard some people, they describe Catholicism as a cult. And what, there's like, what, a billion Catholics in the world? So that's a pretty uh, darn big <laughs> I think the last I heard is like 1.3 billion Catholics and like uh, 1.7 billion Muslims. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a third of the world's population is are part of the two biggest could be considered the, the two biggest cults in the world. Exactly, and I and I know of course with uh as far as cults, usually one of the things that you're going to find is usually there's like some sort of charismatic figurehead, and then also with cults, usually there another of the characteristics is you're expected to surrender all your free will and your decision making basically to that cult. You know, it's like right. If they tell you that you have to wear, you know, plaid trousers with an orange and green, uh, you know, sh- uh, suede shirt every third Thursday of the month, then that's what you're wearing, no matter how much you don't like to, you know, you don't want to. Right. It was like, well, go back to the Heaven's Gate. They all wore the black Nikes with the white swoosh. They all wore black jeans. And I think it was a black or a white, uh, like, sw- shirt. Yeah, it was something like that. Yep. I, I've done some research on Heaven's Gate um, at the time because it was just like it kind of blew my mind that somebody thought there was a you know a spaceship behind a comet and <laughs> you know they it's all had jobs you know they all had jobs they all went and did their jobs and then when they brought their paychecks it was just handed over and then they were given whatever they needed you know it was kind of a commune cultish kind of thing. You know, it's funny when you talk about the whole spaceship behind the comet. I remember seeing a, a picture someone made on a web page way back then. And it's like, you know, so the, so, you know, scientists have it now, or no, they're, oh, how did it go? It's something like, uh, you know, the person said they 
they received this image from NASA say, you know, saying that there was a close-up of, you know, the nucleus of Comet Hale-Bopp. And, you know, this was, of course, around the time that, you know, they were saying, you know, the, the news broke that they thought there was a spaceship waiting behind there. And it's like, right. we leave this picture with you and, you know, you decide what you want to do with it. And you click on the picture and you can see the Death Star was photoshopped in back of the, the comet. Yep, I saw I saw that one. I also saw one where you clicked on it and it had the little alien from the Ziggy cartoons. <laughs> oh, from uh, yeah, Marvin the Martian. No, from the Ziggy cartoons, it was the little round saucer and just this like green, goofy looking alien in there. Oh, I thought yeah, because I I I was thinking of Mar yeah Marvin the Martian. You know, where's the kaboom? There was yeah. supposed to be an earth shattering kaboom. I'm sure. I'm sure there are. Um, I'm sure that was out there too. You know, we never see them all. So yeah, exactly. So well, back to so so back to on track here. So again, yeah, Lovecraft. So I'm I'm not going to sit here and read any more of the titles, but you know, lot of lot of stories. He wrote a lot. He was a very pro, pro, prolific writer. Not only you know, like I said, he did astronomy. He wrote essays. He wrote letters, and then you have all the stuff that's been published when he passed away. There was 60 short stories, novellas, novels that he left behind, and those were all published by Arkham House. And then he has uh, been the influence for several movies. Um, from the list I got, I would say it's somewhere in the area of about 30 of them. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I guess um, what my, my whole idea of this topic for today was, well, twofold one, really. He is definitely an author, if you're into horror, into the horror genre, he's definitely an author worth giving a run. Um, like I said, you got to kind of lock yourself away, you know, start, just, just find an anthology of some of his short stories. That's the best way to start. Two, if you're into the horror genre and you're not into reading, go out and find a list of his movies. Some are funny. You and I did a, did a movie episode on the uh the last lovecraft the relic of cthulhu yep which was a lighthearted look at the mythos and we also did dagon which was not a very lighthearted look at the mythos exactly <laughs> so and i know the was it the lovecraft preservation society i don't know if you saw it or not but they did a a movie based on call of cthulhu where yeah. it was and it was done in using this type of style and special effects that they would have had when the story was written. So it was a, a silent film where, you know, they had, well, there was like the music playing in the background, but whenever someone was going to say something, they had the title card pop up. Yeah. I want to say, I think that was just called Cthulhu, wasn't it? Like in 2007, I'm pretty sure it was just called, I'm pretty sure it was called Call of Cthulhu and I okay. know there was another film being made that was called Cthulhu and the the subtitle was like Welcome Home to the End of the World and it was based on Shadow over uh Innsmouth and yeah. I did see a trailer for uh, and I don't think unfortunately I don't think the movie got greenlit, but there was some talk of trying to create a movie based on At the Mountains of Madness. Yes, and I don't. You're right. I don't think that got greenlit. Then of course there was at least one video game that. Well, actually, I think the the Alone there in the Dark series based on the Call of Cthulhu, especially back in the day of a lot of computer gaming. Yep. 
there was a lot of Cthulhu games. I had a few of them. One of them actually was done so well, and I don't remember what it was called, but I bought it. I played it once, and that I was done. It was it was done that well. It scared you. I think Alone in the Dark has uh, some elements of the Cthulhu mythos. The one I always think of is uh, Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth, which, again, is based more on Shadow over Innsmouth as opposed to uh, Call of Cthulhu. And it did incorporate some of those Lovecraftian elements, like if you did encounter something frightening or unpleasant, if as you looked at it, you started to go insane. And if you spent too much time looking or in the presence of that object, you basically killed yourself. I, I'm looking through these list of, of movies, and I think there's one we got to hope someday comes on Hulu or, um, or uh, Netflix, because... Um, just from the name of it, we we gotta we gotta do a, an episode on this. It's called the Call Girl of Cthulhu. <laughs> there was. Do you remember the old uh, Ghostbusters cartoon? The one, not the one based on the real Ghostbusters, but the one based on the you know the the famous Ghostbusters movie. You told me about that one, didn't you? Yeah, they had. They actually had an episode uh, called the Collect Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, and that's yeah, another thing that maybe... Was that the one you showed me the intro to when we were in um, Oshkosh? Yes, because uh, a little bit of film lore that's totally irrelevant to the topic. Back in, I think it was the 70s, there was a live-action cartoon series called The Ghostbusters, and they had a space between Ghost and Busters. It was made by Filmation, and it had two guys and their pet gorilla that would go around, you know, busting ghosts. But after that series reached its end, they, you know, you know, then the, you know, of course, they came out with the famous Ghostbusters movie everyone knows about, you know, the one with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, um, was it Ernie Hudson and, and Harold Paul Remus. Harold Remus. And, Harold Remus, yeah, you're right. And, you know, so what they did is they paid uh, film, they paid Filmation a royalty to use the word Ghostbusters, and that's where they, you know, they put the... Uh, you know, they, they put it together as one word. Right. And then after that got popular, then of course they came out with the Ghostbusters cartoon, but the, you know, Filmation decided they were going to break into the cartoon business again. And that's when they had their, you know, they brought back their cartoon, the Ghostbusters, which still had the same gorilla in it, but it, um, but the, the two men in it were actually, you know, the sons of the two original ones. So I know right. one of them was called the real Ghostbusters. I think that was the one based on the, you know, based on the, you know, the Bill Murray. Right. Uh, yeah. They were Remus the real one. Ghostbusters. I remember watching that on Saturday mornings. So yeah, like I said, they had the, uh, yeah, so there was the ghost, the real Ghostbusters and then the Ghostbusters. And then I know eventually they came out with another movie, you know, another cartoon series, the new Ghostbusters. Yeah. And then, yeah. You know, then of and course, now, new movie, the Ghostbusters, yep. that has the uh, the female cast. Have you seen that yet? I did. I actually thought it was very well done. They played their little homage to the original type thing. You know, um, all the living characters, Ernie Hudson, uh, Dan Aykroyd, and Bill Murray, all made cameos. And then they had in one of the scenes because it starts off in a university. As the girl walked, as one of the new Ghostbusters, before they were the Ghostbusters, walks out of her classroom, across the hall 
is a bust of Harold Ramis. So I thought that was kind of a cool little homage to, uh, to that. Um, but anyway, to get back to what I was saying, the, the, the twofold reason I wanted to do this topic, obviously the first one, you know, we kind of got sidetracked on, but that's give the guy a read. If you're into the horror genre, give him a read. It, it's definitely worth it. Or, or give him a watch. I mean, there's, there's movies out there. The other reason is because I am a gamer and the fact that one of my favorite games is the Call of Cthulhu, which is based off the mythos. If you read something or you watch something and you really like it and you're a gamer, which you probably are if you're listening to Al's podcast, <laughs> you know, give it a shot. It's, it's a, it's a percentile based, uh, um, game system. It's really easy to learn. If you know how to play basic role playing, uh, which is another system out there, you know how to play Call of Cthulhu. It's the same system. They're both uh, Chaosium games, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering. Those were the two reasons I wanted to bring it up. And I guess I just want to close out with a little bit of um, a little, uh, I got a paragraph here I'd like to read. It's in a book. It's called In uh, Lovecraft and Influence, His Predecessors and Successors, Robert H. Waugh, that's W-A-U-G-H, if anybody wants to read the book, has assembled essays that are vast in scope, ranging from the Bible uh, through the Edwardian period and well into the present. The collection is devoted to authors whose work had an impact on Lovecraft. Uh, these include Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, Swift Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edgar Allan Poe, and Lord Dunsay, and those who drew inspiration from him, including William S. Burroughs, Ramsey Campbell, Thomas Ligotti, and Stephen King. And it's not in this paragraph, but I think we can add uh, August Derelith into that. So, And I would recommend checking out any of these guys. Um, I've read several of them, not all of them. I don't know Thomas Ligotti at all or Ramsey Campbell, but I've read Burroughs. I've read uh, King. I've read Hawthorne, um, Pope, Poe. So, you know... I guess that's all I really have to say, Al. I, you know, we've only really can scratch the surface of talking about, you know, Lovecraft and, the you know, his work and his, you know, not just that, but the inspiration that he's had that, you know, his stories have gone on to inspire movies and TV shows and, uh, right. you know, and video games and, you know, role-playing games. So, you know, I'm sure we could always revisit this topic at a later date because there's... You know, oh, there's sure. so much more that, you know, there's, I know there's a lot more we could talk about with Lovecraft and his work. <laughs> well, you know, I, I put this together, honestly, I spent about an hour putting together stuff on this. I mean, so if I actually sat down and dug into it and did research, we could definitely talk about this again. Well, I think we're going to draw this episode to a close then. So I'd like to thank you all for listening. And of course, not only can you catch my podcast at poigamestudio.podbean.com but you can catch Chad's podcast whose podcast it is anyway where follows a very same pattern to what we did today where the guest chose the topic and in this case uh, you know the host me I had absolutely no idea what to expect so with that said I'd like to thank you all for joining us and have a good evening or morning or afternoon Whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.